Well, uh, the book of Nehemiah, it's the story actually starts back with Ezra, where God had already started to save and bring Israel back into the land. And the temple was being built, but now Nehemiah, it's about 10 years down the road. And so the situation with Nehemiah is, is that there's been this sense that here's something that God is doing. We see some progress in a direction that we feel God is going. And there's a sense of excitement in what God is doing in saving and bringing them back and the building of the temple. But now he hears word that there's resistance, that there's distress, there's a roadblock. And so the story is really pertinent to us individually, us as a church, us in our community, uh, us as a country, in, in every aspect imaginable. The situation that it's speaking to is feeling as though something's changing, something's going for the good, but then feeling a resistance and feeling a stopping of that and, and feeling distress over that this isn't going to happen. And it's that disillusionment. If you put it to the Lord and you say, this is something that God is doing, it's seeing God making some sort of progress, but then feeling the weight of that resistance and the distress of seeing it feel blocked and then wondering, is this was this really something that God was doing? And it's something that we face personally. We can feel like a sense of moving in a direction, a sense of something lifting, and then we just encounter some very difficult times, and it causes us to question, well, what's God doing? As a church, it's the same thing. In the community, it's the same thing. Every single time that God does something, it puts us on this path, and the initial part of it is, is it just feels great to just see God doing something or feel that sense of relief that of being saved is what it is. But down that road, in this case, 10 years, maybe it's 10 days, but down that road, we encounter something, and what it is is resistance of what God is doing. But the way it's just expressed to us is just distress, fear, a sense that did I, what I saw before, is this really going to happen? And so... What we see here is Nehemiah, how he deals with that, and it's a guide for us to, to find that hope of Jesus and to find the faith that we see here with Nehemiah. And the very first thing to understand is that if you were to read through this chapter 1 and compare it to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 9, you would see it's almost a mirror comparison. Everything that Nehemiah does is mirroring Moses. And so the first point is, is it's very clear that as Nehemiah is telling this, that he's, he's been reading about Moses. He's been looking for help by looking at scripture, which is what we're doing today, and seeing how that relates to his life and whether he purposefully mirrored it, or it's just that he read through it, and, and so the way he started acting it out mirrored it, or whether it's just God wondered, we don't know. But what we do know is it's very similar to what was going on with Moses. And the way it started with Moses and the way 
that it started with Nehemiah, his connection to the faith that he needs to move forward, his connection to dealing with this distress is very obvious here. He just digs into repentance. And that's what Moses did. And what's interesting for Moses and for Nehemiah is that they were both talking about repentance of an entire country, but you don't see any repentance from the entire country. The only thing you see is a single person repenting. Now, there may have been other people. We don't know. The story doesn't say anything about that. It, it, it obviously wasn't all of Israel. It's just the story of a single person. In the case of Moses, it's even more clear. It doesn't sound like anybody was really all that repentant, ever. But Moses repented for them. In other words, Moses led, Nehemiah led forward, not even by getting everybody else to repent. They probably would have loved that. But the leadership didn't even stem from them trying to get other people to repent. The leadership stemmed from them personally, a single person repenting for their whole group, for their whole country, for their whole community, for their whole church, for their whole family, a single person. That's what godly leadership is about. Now, now why is godly leadership about that? Because that's all we have to offer. Moses says, look, you guys, God's put before you a blessing and a curse. If you do good, God's going to bless you and take care of you. He's promised that, and he's already proved that he will do that. But if you mess up, then you're going to suffer because of that. You're going to be scattered. And so when you become scattered, know this, that God still has a hope for you. And he says, when you're scattered. In other words, he's, look, Moses says to all of Israel, he says, look, you guys are just so stubborn. The entire time that I've known you, you've been unfaithful. There hasn't been any moments. Now, is that... Does that mean that there hasn't been anything that Israel hasn't done that's good? No, they did some things. Did they not follow God in some sort of sense? They, they did. There was lots of things that they did. But he says, when you look at the totality of it, in my opinion, Moses says, from the time I've known you, you've been rebellious. From the time I've known you, you've been stubborn. From the time I've known you, everything about you has been unfaithful. And now Nehemiah is connecting that, and this is like a Almost a thousand years later, you know, it's hard to tell 800, 900 years, close enough to a thousand, looking back and just saying, Nehemiah can say, look, over the course of a thousand years, all we know of Israel in the history is that no one's ever followed God. No one was ever faithful. No one's ever gotten it right. We just keep messing it up. And when we look at that personally, how long does it take us to come to the conclusion that we are just not going to get things right? If we look at it as a country, as a community, any way that you want to look at it, Moses and Nehemiah is saying, take a look at whatever it is that you're looking at in terms of yourself or a group of people you're attached to. Take a realistic look and doesn't a true look at life tell you? We're not going to get it right. 
What is it about anything that we know of ourselves that leads us to the conclusion that there's some sort of hope that all of a sudden we're going to start getting things right? So where does that leave us? The only hope that it leaves us with is, well, what if God is faithful even though we are not? That's the only hope that's left. If we take a realistic look at our life, at our community, at our church, at our country, in any way that you want to frame it, if you take a realistic look, and this is up to you, if you see hope in getting it right, then go get it right. If you see hope that the country is going to get it right, then go get it right. You know, go do that. That's good. That's a hope that's there. If that's true, but Jesus is offering us saying, look, but if you look at things and over the past thousand years, you realize, I just don't really see that hope there. I just don't. He's saying, Moses and Nehemiah are saying, don't despair. There is another hope. There's this hope. If you get things right, things will go good for you. And if you want to go down that road, go. But if you're taking a look of Moses and Nehemiah and, and realistically looking, just say, I just don't really see any hope that that's going to happen. There's still a hope, though. And what is that hope? That's what Nehemiah found in Moses. That's what Moses and Nehemiah are displaying to us to take hope in. And that hope is, it starts with just a realization that, you know what? I mean, the only thing I really have to offer is if God, if my only hope is God being faithful to me, God being faithful to us as a church, God being faithful to our community, that God cares about it. The, the, if the only hope is that God is going to be faithful, even though we've proved over a thousand years or proved throughout our life, proved however you want to look at it, we've proved we're not faithful. To God, but God still loves us and cares for us. And if the hope is that God will continue to love us and care for us and give us life, even though we're unfaithful, what is the only way that we can connect to that? The only way that's left, if we can't get it right, then the only hope is just let's at least admit we can't get it right and just repent and just at least say sorry. That's the only way that we have to connect to this new hope. Now, if you are on this hope, what that hope means when you repent, it means if, if it's we're trying to save ourselves, we're trying to get things right, we're trying, then repentance means, okay, now I messed up this once, and now I'm repenting, and now I'm not going to mess up anymore. That's how repentance works out here. And if you have hope in that, then take hope in it. But for me, for Moses, for Nehemiah, it's like you can repent all you want, but you're going to keep on messing up. That's just the fact. But what does repentance mean over here? What value does repentance have if the value isn't that I'm just not going to mess up anymore? Is there a value in it? Some people over here say, well, what value is it? There's no value in repentance unless you're actually going to stop doing what you were doing before. No, there's a value. But the value is it connects us to a different hope. What is this hope? Not that we're going to save ourselves, but a hope that even though we're messed up, God's still going to save us. Now, if that's a lie, 
then repentance means nothing. But if that's the truth, if God does love us, if God does care for us, even though we've messed up, and even though we're going to continue to mess up, then repentance has some value because it moves our heart towards the only hope that we have, which is that, that God, if we're going to get saved, if we're going to find any kind of relief, if we're going to walk down any kind of path, if we're going to see anything good happen, this is the only thing I have to offer to say yes. Yes, God, I want that help. Repentance isn't important because it's an indicator that I'm going to stop messing up. Repentance is important. The only value of repentance on this side of things is to say, yes, God, yes, that's the hope that I want to walk into. And there's no way for me, look, over here when you say, oh, well, we're going to fix things, we're going to make things good, we're going to make things right, we're going to change things, we're going to save ourselves, we're going to save our community, we're going to save the world, and we're going to do it on our own. What does yes mean there? It doesn't mean anything, because people just say all sorts of stuff, and it's meaningless talk. Yes over here isn't even expressed with a yes. It's expressed by a heart that's willing to just come to reality and say, look, there just isn't any hope in us contributing. <laughs> but I am going to be repentant. I can be repentant. And it doesn't mean that I'm repenting for everything. We don't even know everything. It doesn't mean even that that my, in my heart, I'm even necessarily like fully committed to repent. It doesn't even mean that. This picture that we see here is a single person amongst millions of people, a single person repenting. And God's saying, in terms of this big picture, well, that's enough. That's enough. It, it's that small. That's why Jesus says, look, it only takes faith as a mustard seed. It's not like your whole life has to be fully committed. You can't, we can't do that. We can't do it. But what it is is some small part of us in our heart, we start feeling something. When it says there he grieved, it wasn't an act of grieving. It wasn't uh, uh, uh tradition that he was following. He wasn't faking it. The word there means he felt something and he started weeping. He wasn't like forcing himself to weep. It was that he just, in his heart, there was something that was there, something that God had put in his heart. And when he was presented with the difficulty, it struck him and his heart was soft. And he just was like an automatic response that he started to weep. And out of that, he didn't just leave it. He dug into it. And he just started repenting. And not repenting for those people. He says, I am my father's house, including himself in it. Just saying, us as a group, I'm speaking for everybody here. And I'm just asking you, God, forgive us. We repent, even though it's just one person. And what is it that he points us to? He says, down a few more verses, he, he explains what it is 
that the hope is. It's a hope of, the word is redemption. And that word redemption in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it points to a specific event, always. And that specific event is something that Israel experienced when God saved them from Egypt and pulled them out. And it narrows it down to a specific moment of that salvation. All the miracles that God did through Moses, they didn't save Israel because Pharaoh just hardened his heart and said no. It came down to a solitary event, and that's what this redemption is pointing to, something that Israel was called on to remember with the Passover, something that Jesus remembered and said, this points to me. This is what happened when I died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible's been pointing to this event, and it's this idea of redemption, and it's seen here when the angel of death was released. In other words, when the hearts had been hardened to the point that the weight, some part of the weight of judgment needed to be felt. Or whether it needed to be felt or not, that was the beginning of it. A weight of judgment was beginning to be felt. That was the beginning of deliverance. And for us, we know what that's like. Where the weight of our actions, we start to feel, whenever you've just really messed up, it's when you start feeling the weight of that messing up and it starts coming down upon us. And it's this moment of saying, is there any salvation for me who's messed up? And the important thing to see in the Passover is that as that angel of death went out, God made it clear, if judgment is going to go out, there's no one that's going to survive. All of Egypt will be taken away with it. All of Israel will be taken. All of the world will be taken. There'll be nothing left if this angel of death is unleashed. And so God put parameters in his graciousness. And Egypt was not destroyed. Pharaoh deserved death. Pharaoh didn't die. But God said, I'm going to put parameters, though. The angel of death can take the firstborn of everything. But he saved Egypt. The majority of Egypt was left saved, but they felt in some sense a small portion of the weight of what it is that they really deserved for killing all the children of Israel and for all the other evil things that they had done. And for Israel, they was no different. They had betrayed their brother into slavery. They had done all sorts of things. They deserved death just as much as Pharaoh did, but God gave them a special deliverance that went above and beyond what he gave out generally. And he said, look, there's, there's something I'm going to point out to you. If you kill this lamb, take its blood, put it on the, the doorposts. I'm telling the angel of death, if you see that on the doorposts, you cannot enter in for anything. Everybody that's under that doorpost, when you see that, and that's why it points to Jesus, this covering of Jesus. And what it was was him writing a check saying, look, I'm, going, I'm not paying the price right now, but I will pay the price. I will make it right. 
And it's that moment of redemption that he's pointing to. And God hadn't made it right quite then, but him saying, I'm going to, and the fact that you can see I'm going to make it right is that I'm completely alleviating what should fall on you. I'm taking it all onto myself so that you now have life. You have freedom in life. You're receiving it as a blessing instead of receiving it as a curse. When we feel distress, it is resistance to what God is doing. But we need to understand that in as much as anything else is resisting God, we in our own hearts are resisting God too. But we have a moment, and you could say this is a part of Nehemiah's history. It's a part of all of our history. He's not pointing to something that he actually experienced. He didn't experience that. Moses did. The people of Israel back in Deuteronomy, they had experienced it. Nehemiah is just reading about it. He's saying, look, this event that I read about in the New Testament, it displays the hope that I need. I need a hope that God is going to be gracious to me, that God is going to lift me out of this, that God has given me a special indicator that he's going to take care of this, that my guilt and involvement in all this, that, that he'll make it right, and, and that I will be able to experience what it would be like if I was living under the blessings of always getting it right, that I would be able to experience that without actually getting anything right, that it would just be given to me as a gift because God is faithful, even though I am not. And what he's telling us to is we can look up the Bible. But Nehemiah did have something in his life. He saw Israel coming back with the temple and people starting in that whole work of Ezra. That was a work of redemption. And we have works of redemption in our life, too. There's moments when we know that something's been given to us that, that we just did not deserve, that we... The weight of the things that we personally have done wrong is starting to encroach on us, overshadow us, and we know that there's these instances where all of a sudden it's lifted, and we're given freedom and life and blessing, and we're given a life that looks as though we hadn't done anything wrong, even though we know we've done nothing but wrong. What he's saying is, is, Grab a hold of that because that's not just a one-off thing. We always think God just, well, he saved me here. He saved me here. But now I'm going to feel the full way. No. God's saying, look, I've already demonstrated what my heart is. I've already spoken to us in the Bible, in our lives. He's given us these moments of redemption to say, I'm making a statement. Now, if the statement was you need to get things right, then, of course, there is no hope because then it's going to all fall apart. But if at that point my statement was, I am being faithful to you, even though you are not, then what is going to stand in the way of that? Because if I could stand in the way of that, it would have never have happened to begin with. If someone else could have stood in the way of that, that would have never happened. If Pharaoh could have stood in the way of that, it never would have happened. But God says, you know that I have already spoken. Redemption has already been put into your life. And the way of connecting 
the way of saying yes begins with me just saying yes to repentance in my heart and to grab a hold of that moment of redemption. And what's very interesting is, is the way that Israel grabbed a hold of it was they just painted this on the doorpost. How hard is that? That's not something that he was asking them to do that was like so far away they had to cross the sea or they had to go to the highest mountain. It didn't take a whole lot of effort to just slap some stuff on the side. It's not just saying yes, because our words are worthless. But God will give us some small thing to start with. For Nehemiah, he's, you can tell he's, he's just praying and fasting. There's a couple things. Now, praying is probably the easiest of those. Fasting, you might say, is a little bit difficult. But this guy is the cupbearer of the king. And in so far as what we see, the, the king that he's talking about may have been the most powerful king in the earth at that time, may have been the most powerful country, or at least as far as they knew in that region, in the history that was being told from that point. It's the pinnacle of power, and the cupbearer is the person who brings the cup to the king, who's in the king's presence all the time. And when you have absolute power like that, Power emanates from the person who has the most contact and the person that has the most contact. In other words, Nehemiah was a very powerful person. And if a very powerful person can't go without eating for a few days, then, I mean, it's a simple thing. God gives us simple things. You know, it might have started for Nehemiah and just read through the Bible. I got something for you. He he finally did it. And when he came away with this, this, this story of Moses and Israel and how that relates to him, I, I know for me, it was a simple thing. And, and I said no for like two whole years to that. Where, and it's not, I've been saying no my whole life. But when it started like impressing on me where I just, I didn't even go to church. I just had this feeling in my heart that like God wanted me to just start reading through this stuff. I just said no forever. But isn't it a simple thing? On Sunday with Easter, people came up and get baptized. You just think, oh, well, people just come up. That's not a simple thing. I mean, it is. You just come do it. But it's difficult to say yes to that. Even just coming to church, saying yes to that, that's a difficult thing. And it's not like there's something religious in it. There's not like there's something that, like, you are a good person if you come to church. There's none of that. But sometimes we just know there's something very small, and it's always very small and very simple, that God is saying, and it's not a path that leads to something being accomplished. It's not a path that leads to me feeling good about myself. It's not a path that leads to me feeling like, oh, I'm just so faithful. It's just me saying yes to one small thing. It could just be, I just feel like I need to give this person some money. Or I just feel like I need to tell this person the truth. 
and it presents itself to us as very difficult because it's this change of course, but it's not a change of course that leaves me feeling good about myself. It's not a change of course that leaves me thinking I'm just such a, you know, I am a code of ethics. It's not that. The only thing it does is it just is, a, God gives us a small way of through our actions to be able to say yes. And what is it that we're saying yes to? To this, I'm going to fix things. I'm going to do what's right. And we're not saying yes to that because we've already proved over and over again that we're going to walk away from that. But it's saying, God, will you be faithful even though I am not? And the power of that, how can I connect to it? The only way is through repentance. And what is repentance? Me just saying the words, I repent? Oh, it is that, and it can be that, because that's all we have to offer. But God gives us some way for that words of repentance, that, yes, God, I want this hope in you. And he gives us just some simple way to break that cycle, to move forward on based on what God's telling me is what it is, based on God's plan. Now, why is that important? that we see that we don't have anything to offer but repentance? Why is it important that we see God's redemption in our life and we see that God's given us some small thing? We've is it important because then I'll know that I'm a good person? Is it important that I know that I'm going to follow God? That's what the disciples thought. But God said to Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. That's not what this is about. But it's that that's where our hope is found. And why is that important? Nehemiah leaves off the whole thing. He says, I've become the cupbearer of the king. In other words, he's known all along. He had in his heart, as soon as he heard this, he knew what he needed to do. But he didn't just go do it. Why? Because that was a frightful thing. Why? Because for him, in his situation, he knew if he presented this to the king and the king said no, or even if it displeased the king in the way that he brought it up, he'd be dead. It was a huge risk. But was it a risk? Was anything actually being risked? Well, that all depends on what God's doing. <laughs> God says he's going to bring his people back. And then God did. And Ezra, the temple is being built. And now there's this distress. And yet, who has all the power with this? This king. And yet, who is it that's been put into the king's presence? Nehemiah. Is his heart there? It is. If this is the plan of God, there is no risk. It's just the joy of participation. But where is the risk? Where is the tension? Where is the distress? I don't know. Is this really what God is It's a crisis of faith. You see, in our life, we know, yeah, I know I've messed up. But God saved me. God's offering me faithfulness on his part, even though I'm not being faithful. And I've got to some degree, some sort of yes that's come out in terms of repentance. 
that builds something. God's given me something small to demonstrate that yes to that, that yes, I'm trusting in you. Yes, I'm repenting. I'm trusting in you. Yes, I'm just going to walk out in this because you told me to. Yes, I'm trusting in you. These small things, why are those important? Because it builds up faith in us. And that faith is necessary because in order for us to walk on the things that God puts us in our heart, the things that God had put in Nehemiah's heart, things that are life and death for the people that we care about, in order for us to take advantage of the place that God has put us in, in terms of Nehemiah, of knowing that he has the joy of being able to participate, that God has brought everything in his life up to this moment, in order to have the faith to move forward, we need to understand that moving forward is going to present itself to us as life and death, as this huge risk that we're risking everything, that everything we have could be taken away, just thrown away and defeat it. It's presenting itself to us like that. And if there is no God, then that is true. But if there is a God, and if that God is faithful to us, even though we are not, if that God has a plan of salvation for us, if God has already been working and we can see it work, if this is something that God is doing, then like in the case of Jesus, even if the king does kill him and bury him in the ground for three days, God has more than enough power. It wasn't even an effort on God's part to raise Jesus from the dead. It may not have even taken a word from God because God had already spoken it into existence. Jesus wasn't stopped by that. It was all part of God's plan. And so the danger, the risk that presents itself to us, that, that brings this fear upon us so that we can't act on what it is that God's put on our heart, because it didn't come from Nehemiah, this weeping, this heart that was open, that was sensitive. That was something God put there. And God put him in a place to be able to act on that. And if we want the joy of participation, we don't need to participate. God, there's plenty of people God can use. But if we want the joy of feeling like we're participating in some sort of sense, if we want the joy of being able to feel like we're contributing to something worthwhile, if we want the joy of being able to think like, well, there's something about my life that has some sort of purpose or meaning to it, if we want that joy, we're not going to grab a hold of it by thinking that we got to figure out the right thing to do and do it. That's just not going to happen. Unless, if you believe that, then go do it. But for those that see that there is no hope in that, Jesus is presenting us a different option. And it's going to eventually come to a place where to us, it's going to present itself as just a giant, giant risk, risking it all. Where will we have the faith to move forward? If we want this joy, it, it, it is going to, by definition, mean pushing past this sense of risk, this sense of fear to be able to step out in faith. Where is that faith going to come from? Nehemiah found it in Scripture. He found it as he saw Moses grabbing a hold of repentance, saying, 
I have nothing to offer Israel. I have nothing to offer myself. I have nothing to offer as a leader. The only thing I have to offer is me personally, I'm just going to repent for myself. I'm going to repent for everyone else too. As we say yes to repentance, it moves our heart in a direction so that when we face something difficult, we can look and say, well, I mean, I already know that it's not up to me. I already know that it's not up to the king. I already know, is God going to be faithful even though I am not? I'm already committed to that. So how is this any different? If we grab a hold of where that leads us, which is seeing that every breath we take is God redeeming us and giving us life, even though we don't deserve it. Every good thing that we have in our life is given to us on the basis of the power of God's redemption, and that's God speaking to us saying, I will save you. I am faithful, even though you are not. I do love you. I do care for you. I am still giving you something. Then as we encounter this, if we've been just taking that on all the little things, what happens? It builds up to say, well, as with David, God saved me from the lion and the bear. He'll save me from this giant too. What, what's the difference here? <laughs> I know that you guys just see it as this huge fearful thing that this giant's just going to kill me. If he kills me, he kills me. But God's already given me these moments of redemption, and I just don't see how this is any different. So he walked in without fear. Maybe he had some fear, but it didn't matter whether he had fear or not, because he still walked into it. And he enjoyed being a part of what it is that God was doing. And for us as individuals, for us as a church, that's what the Lord has for us. And that's where our strength is found. What we have to offer is repentance. What God has to offer is redemption. And if we have faith in God's faithfulness, if we have faith in what God has started to do. Then we'll have the faith to push past our fears, push past the risk, and be a part of something that actually is going to make a difference, only because it's something that God himself is doing. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to push past our fears, help us to push back all of the the real-to-life risks that we're presented with, the life and death that we're presented with, all of the difficult things that, that we're presented with, help us to see clearly in the midst of all of that what it is that you are doing. And help us to repent, not just for ourselves, but for everyone we're connected to. Let us be the person that's repenting. And let us say yes to your faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that you would make your faithfulness clear to us. And you already have, but open our eyes to see it. Open our ears to hear it. We thank you for being faithful, even though we are not. Please give us some good way of following you, not in our own strength, but just being able to say yes and push past and to be able to enjoy being a part of all the good works that you are doing. We lift this all up to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.